as I'm sitting here just wondering how I'm going to begin, kind of sensing what's here with me and all of us sitting sitting here, I, I wanted to ask you the question, are you waiting for something to happen now? <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> oh, some of you at least recognizing that. Yeah, there's this kind of, yeah, you're waiting for something to happen and then it's like, okay, what's going to happen? Yeah. Have you been waiting for something to happen during the day as well? Ever in your meditation, inside, outside, waiting for something else to deliver us from where we are? And when are we really going to get it that Dharma practice is really, really not going somewhere else? It's not trying to actually take us somewhere else. When are we going to get get it, actually, that every time we're waiting for a better moment than this one, we're rejecting ourselves profoundly. So tonight I'd like to speak about a couple of things. One is openness, one is rejection, and one is acceptance. So I'm going to start with openness, because it's often where we start, actually. You are an openness. You are an openness. This is much more fundamental than any of the struggles that you've had today, any of the experiences you've had today, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral. You are an openness. But mostly we don't realize that. We don't have the immediate recognition of that. You might recognize openness. Normally we say, I'm open to something. Right? I'm open to coming to Guy House on retreat, which you all were. Right? You might not still be, <laughs> but you were. There's an openness implicit in coming to any learning situation, any willingness to inquire, any willingness to sit with ourselves. It's a precursor, actually, the openness for learning, for listening, for anything to arise, actually, for anything to arise. But we normally notice it in, I'm open to something. We notice the something, and I feel either more or less open to that thing, that person, that situation. And in practice, we can start to know also that openness, that which is simply open. We can't actually do anything about it. You may sit here thinking, what's she talking about? I don't feel open. I've been closed all day. Tight, rigid, moody, whatever it is. What happens is we fail to recognize the openness that we are and we cling and identify with the contents that are moving through. So one useful, you can usefully look at it in terms of, and, and I present this, it's not a, a absolute picture, but I think it's a useful way of looking, is that we have this open, knowing, that which simply knows what's going on. And I don't just mean this kind of knowing, but right now, right? When you open your eyes and you let the colors and the forms come to you, the visual, it's simply known, right? It's simply you can see the shapes and the you can discern the differentiation. Maybe put, to put it more simply, the Buddha spoke in terms of... Um, 
and you can do this with your eyes right now, or the sound, or the hearing, that in the seeing, in the seeing sense, there is just the seeing. In the hearing, there's just the hearing. And it's simply, it's simply known. Your mind doesn't have to do anything with it. The, the uh, further analogy is as clear as color is to someone with good sight. Right? You don't have to think about it. You can just look. As clear as color is to someone with good sight, it's... It's obvious. Before even the concept red comes into my mind, it's obvious. It's just simply this knowing. And we can't do anything about that. It's just here. It's, a, it's part of what we are. It's this kind of open knowing. So we can usefully look at it in terms of this open knowing, where experience is simply known, and the experience that arises and passes within that container, we could say. A little bit like we're a, a vessel, and experiences are arising constantly of sight, of sound, of taste, of touch, of smell, of thought, of image, of feeling. Experiences keep arising. What happens is they arise, and we don't leave them alone. We go, oh, I like that one. Oh, I don't like that one. Oh, it's boring. Fall asleep. This openness is actually unhindered. It's unhindered. And we see that if we look at a small baby, actually. You can see, and it's sometimes the attraction. In the, st in the staff dining room yesterday, one of the staff had been to see a newborn nephew and came back excited with the photos. And it was her first nephew. And she said, yeah, it's amazing just sitting with a baby. They're just this kind of, this openness. Things move through pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, unhindered in the beginning. Unhindered. There's a big field of openness. You can see it if you spend time in stillness with a baby, whatever condition they're in, actually, whether they're happy or unhappy. You can see that they're not quite located up in their head center yet, like most of us get later on. They're not kind of, in the beginning, looking at you from here. right? They're just kind of, it's very fluid. You can see that the whole system is really unfixed, very unfixed. We're not trying to become babies again in practice. A baby doesn't yet have a maturity and a wisdom to know what it is, actually. It's open, but doesn't know it's open. It's just working with all those impressions that are coming, the pleasant ones, the unpleasant ones. But there is something that we may recognize or remember or have seen or even know here and now about ourselves. There is an open field of awareness. For example, if I say to you right now, here's your new instruction, stop being aware. Right now. Stop it. You can't. You can't. It's, it pre, it predates is not quite the right word. It's, it's there prior to anything we want to do with our experience. It's, it's a very basic function, a beautiful open awareness. But maturity, the child isn't mature yet, but maturity usually gets equated with closing down around that openness. Because we've got things to do and places to go and things to achieve and, and we kind of get on with our life and very often lose contact with that openness and find ourselves more or less open to things as we go through our life. But there's something we miss in that. So I, 
understand that some people have been um, I'll, I understand something about some people I'll say that in a, that part in a moment let me put it this way we could say at the beginning of the res- uh, retreat this is your instruction you are an openness sit here select none of your experience and reject none of it pull none of it towards you and push none of it away and the dharma will unfold and you will realize who and what you are please begin really that's it but we do select and we do reject and we do push and we do pull and the instructions are in the service not of trying to become a better meditator or to try get somewhere else they're in the service to see this process of how we constantly close down our openness how it's happening moment by moment by moment but we just don't see it we're so identified with the contents of sense of our body of our mind of our heart of our thoughts of our images we're so enthralled or horrified or hoping so we need the instructions to start to see the process of how it works that we pull and push and close down around this openness our nature is open is boundless the teachings point to this but we don't know that we're boundless often we feel bound we feel roped in we feel encaged in encased encapsulated as this separate sense of self here so let's look at some of the ways that we get roped in literally roped in this openness kind of gets roped in and bounded first one that i'd like to look at is the one around judgment self judgment equally the judgment of other we don't always see the suffering when we're judging the other <coughs> we don't see the suffering for ourselves so obviously see it perhaps more clearly initially with the self judgment the way it binds us completely binds us so i wonder if you'll help me out here i was sitting upstairs reflecting thinking of all kinds of different examples of self judgment it's not that difficult is it really you can you don't have to look too far but i thought i'll ask you guys save me saying it all all the time what are some of the headline self judgments if you're willing because you might even have a judgment that you're not supposed to have self judgment anyone got one of those right oh i've been practicing for days or 20 years i'm i should have got over the judgment part by now so if i admit that i've got a self judgment then i'm going to start judging myself later so i'm just going to shut up right it's a factor that will arise I sound like it's good news don't I? I'm looking happy it it will keep arising it arises we could say at the threshold of anything that's going to open the the self judgment is in a way part of its function is to just keep us bounded don't don't expand don't open keep the status quo one of my teachers calls the self judgment the guardian of the status quo like this little guardian trying to keep us keep everything nice and safe in a box that we recognize and that our parents recognize very often so now you might have a new self judgment that if i don't come up with a self judgment then they'll think i'm someone that do- You know how it works you've got to it just keeps going doesn't it you judge the judgment and right so what have been some of the judgments that have arisen in the last couple of days 
Anyone? Just with, like the sentence. You know how they come out as this kind of, oh God, you're so, or you're still, or whatever. Anyone willing? Throw, throw them out into the room. You're stupid. I'm stupid. Yeah, sometimes it comes in I language, sometimes it comes in your language. It's quite good to discern which it is for us. Yeah. I can't do it. Get back to the present. Get back to the present. <laughs> Nothing ever changes. changes. God, nothing's ever going to change for you. This is hopeless. hopeless. You're hopeless. I'm hopeless. It's got this kind of, it's, it's pointing really about something about you. Something about you is completely wrong and unacceptable. Any others that you see? I'm not good enough, as the classic judge. I'm not good enough. Yeah. You never learn. You're still with that. You haven't let go of that yet. Yeah, any others? Huh? You're too needy. Yeah, you need too much. That's really a push us down there. There was another one over there. Huh? Meaning, you're delusional, I'm delusional, I'm delusional. You're so ignorant, I'm so ignorant. It's usually got this demeaning quality. It has to sort of put you down and back in your place, actually. It's one of the features of it. Everyone, so it has this comparing quality, and it always in judgment there has to be a self and an other somewhere. We're comparing ourselves to something, some ideal, some view. Everyone else is better at this than me. You're not worth the effort. effort. Oh, you can feel that, can't you? That it's like that beginning of the Monty Python. Remember that thing when that boot comes along and goes. Remember that bit. It's that cartoon boot and it just kind of completely squashes that. I don't even know what it is it squashes. I just remember the boot every time. Yeah. I'm so old I'll be dead soon anyway. I'm so? I'm so old I'll be dead soon And And is it like, don't bother with yourself? Yeah, why bother? Why bother with yourself? Yeah, it's too late now anyway. Yeah. 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 Of other people. No self-judgments. Like, um, yes, I'm doing all right at the moment. Very good, yeah. Yeah. That has to work with its converse, and we don't often hear those ones. Oh, doing really good here. <laughs> doing our walking meditation. Hmm. <laughs> Looking good. <laughs> yeah, they're the ones we don't hear so much. Because... Huh? So straight after that one, oh God, you're so smug, right? Can't win, really. You can't. You absolutely can't win. So given that we can't win, let's just look at the process of judgment and see what we can, how we can work with it. And there's there's a lot of humour as you hear each other say those awful things that happen in our mind. But when they happen in our mind, they're not funny normally. Right? When we make the space around it and we start looking at it with awareness from the open perspective, we can see how, in a way, we can start to laugh because we all have it. We believe it so strongly. And yet it's so painful, isn't it? So painful. When we're inside, we feel roped in and it feels like an authority. It feels like it's telling the truth. That's where we get roped in. So the first first um, thing to do is we have to discern it. We have to know it's happening. Very often, one of the ways that self-judgment works is that it sort of remains a little bit hidden in the wings. We just know we've something just feels horrible, we're collapsed, we're roped in, and we don't quite know we've been attacked in a 
an inner attack. We need to discern that that's what's happening and name it as it is. This is an attack. This is judgment. This is judgment. have to really discern it clearly. It's like, in a way, we start to shine the light on it. It doesn't like that so much. I mean, I'm speaking like it as if it's someone else. It's not. It's us now. right? But we start to shine the light on the judgment. So name it. And one way we can work with it is to simply name, oh, judgment. Judgment. Oh, that's what it is. It's judgment. Begins the process of unhooking from it. Begins it. One teacher from our lineage, one of the senior teachers, he said one way he had to work with it, there was just a period in his practice where they were just coming thick and fast. And before I tell you what he did with it, people tend to notice different things. We tend to have our own habit with regard to judgment. Some people notice that they collapse, right? That we get the attack, oh God, you still got sadness, or whatever it is. We get the attack and we collapse. It's like everything just kind of goes, we believe it, we've given it complete authority and we've, we've literally gone under the boot, as I described earlier. Other people try to rationalize with it. So the judge comes, you're, let's say, let's say you're out there in the dinner queue trying to be mindful and you drop your broccoli all over the floor, right? And then this spiritual judge comes, oh God, you're so unmindful. Or everybody's seen, whatever it might be, you're so unmindful. The rationalizing one will try and say, well, actually... You know, it's not that I'm not mindful. The person behind me bumped me and and we start kind of engaging in a dialogue with our judge trying to convince it. Don't bother. We, in doing so, we're giving authority to something. We're giving authority to something. And uh, while we keep doing that, we keep binding ourselves into the old into the conditioned, into the history. Other people try to argue with it. Do you ever, any of you recognize that? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Try and kind of get heavy with it, and it doesn't work either. Again, we're giving it authority. All of those three postures, we're believing it's the holder of the truth. Not confident that coming into contact with our primary experience is our vehicle for truth. We're giving the authority and the truth-telling to something old, something fearful, something not fresh. So don't engage the content, but clearly discern if there is an attack and name it as such, judgment. So to finish the story with this teacher, he had he said what he had to do was count them. He had to count the judgments, not get into them, but just name it from when he woke up. Oh, judgment number one. By the time he put his foot on the floor, two, three. Huh? Getting his toothbrush, four, five. Judgment number five. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I got you. Number that, and he said by the time he got to number two hundred and fifty before lunch somewhere, he, he only could laugh at that point. To count them is to have already some room because we're discerning. To count it, we have to discern it's happening. We're already willing to say no. That isn't the authority, but I can start to see it. I can start to know it. This open awareness can simply recognize, oh, it's judgment. Sometimes we have to get out the sword and say, enough, enough. And really, actually, not go there. It's like, enough. Defending our own right to sit here and have our experience. And that, can, that needs some fire sometimes. Just as you might pr- wish to protect somebody else being bullied the judge is really like a bully. 
like a little kid in the playground being bullied by a big kid. You say, enough. You go and stand over there. I used to be a primary school teacher. You go and stand over there. Leave, leave him alone. Leave her alone. And the, um, in the story of the Buddha on the night of his, before his awakening, when he took his seat, when he'd finished being the diehard ascetic, and he resolved to sit to really understand what freedom was, even beyond the most incredible concentrated states, but what freedom was. What was a freedom that was not about things that come and go, that was not about attaching to experiences? When he made that resolve, he was attacked, inner attacked, we could say, by many, many forms of uh, greed, of hate, of confusion, the mind, basically. And the last one to come, and in the tradition they call the Mara, it's personified as if it's a someone to tell the story. All these Maras visited him, the Mara to try and kind of delight him into something else. Many, many things. But the Mara I want to tell you about, the last Mara to come was the Mara who's, who's basically the self-critic and says, who do you think you are sitting there thinking you can be free? Have you had that one yet? <laughs> Who do you think you are? And such was his discernment at the moment. Still arose. It's there, right on that threshold of awakening. Still arose. But he could see it really clearly. And he, the story says that he uttered, I see you, Mara. I see you. He's not pulled into that authority. It has no authority when we sit from the perspective of more of our openness, of more of the real love of truth, not some stale old authority that may have been there when we were six, but of the real love of the truth of what's here and now. And the story then says that he reached down and touched the earth and the earth bore witness to his right to sit and know his freedom. And the, the, the Naga snake with the, the big the kind of cobra thing came up to protect him and the earth rumbled and all these amazing things happened. But the earth basically, what that's saying is the earth bore witness to his right to be there. And that symbol of touching the earth is a gesture. In fact, yeah, I think that's the one. The one behind me is reaching down to touch the earth in that mudra of our right to be here and sit and know what is possible for a human being. One other way that I've seen it show up, which is quite hard to work with, is we kind of somatize the attack or our reaction to the attack. I remember on my very first retreat at the old guy house uh, almost 20 years ago, um, I had the job of wake-up bell ringer and it was my first retreat, and I had to ring the bell, and you know, there's all these millions of new things you're getting used to, as some of you are knowing this week. And did my best, but I was a little nervous about the whole thing about being on retreat anyhow, and so I was, I was a little tentative in my bell ringing. I didn't really want to wake people up. You know? <laughs> I was a bit too polite, <laughs> or something. And there was a note on the notice board the very first morning, could the bell ring, a morning wake-up bell ring, a ring louder? I didn't hear the bell this morning and missed the first sitting. It didn't say it in that tone of voice. It was very, <laughs> that's how I heard it. It simply said, please ring louder, um, I, I missed the first sitting. I heard it as, you're wrong, you're bad. Not only are you wrong and bad, 
that person's opportunity for waking up and full enlightenment, you, it's probably your fault that they're never going to be a Buddha. You know, and the mind just... It's ridiculous. In a way, we can see that it's ridiculous when we say it out loud and we put it in context. But I remember what happened was I could sort of see the attack coming. So this is sometimes what happens. We see the attack kind of lurking at the edge and we get afraid. Does that ring a bell? And then we start to get afraid. It's like, oops, I'm about to be attacked here. And I didn't notice at the time what I did, but on reflection what I saw, it's like I kind of squeezed, squeezed around my chest and my arms, like recoiled, became hard and tight, kind of bats the attack away. But I start to contract, somatize a lot of that fear and contraction. So that's also one thing to watch out for. We're, we're still giving it authority, very much so. When I get very afraid of the attack, I'm giving it authority. It requires support to touch the earth, to recognize and see it clearly as it is, and to know it as an attack and say, enough, enough. Sometimes it's enough to simply see it with the awareness and recognize Sometimes we need to reach down, touch the earth, get the sword out, and say enough. Shall I read you this piece from an Indian teacher, Kirpal Vananji? He says, break your heart no longer. Each time you judge yourself, you break your heart. You stop feeding on the love that is the wellspring of your vitality. But now the time has come, your time, to live, to celebrate, and to see the goodness that you are. There is no, there is no ultimate evil, no wrong in you or in any other. There is the thought of it, and the thought has no substance. You are dear, divine, and very pure. Let no one, no thing, no idea or ideal obstruct you. If one comes, even in the name of truth, forgive the thought for its unknowing. Do not fight it. Let go and breathe into the goodness that you are. One way that we reject ourselves, that we rope ourselves in, bind ourselves in unknowingly, is in the belief that there's somewhere we've got to get to in this practice. Somewhere we're going on this retreat that isn't here. Can't be here because I'm still me. This is ordinary etc etc and so we have an ideal or a view or a hope that we're going somewhere else might be I'm headed for my boundless nature I'm going to work and get there right and it's a beautiful goal it's a lovely idea but we lift ourselves up we pick ourselves up we get our muscles in gear and we start working really hard in the meditation because we think we're going somewhere. More happiness, more concentration. Someone said today, yeah, I noticed that the pattern is i am actually just got my head down just to get through, just to get through this. That's still a sense of going somewhere, that there's an end that's called Saturday and that we're headed for that end, and that's got to look like some of these things I want. Someone said, yeah, I've got to stay three, and I've got to get through all of my karma. I mean, I'm, I'm extrapolating a little bit. I've got to get through my material, and I want a transforming experience. 
And what she noticed was there's a pressure in the system, and she's absolutely not alone in that. Right? There's a pressure in the system that comes, then I hear the meditation instructions, I know I want to go somewhere else, and I start squeezing and pushing and tightening and working really hard. And then when I work really hard and I try and be mindful with my breathing and this thing about Vedna and I'm trying to do it, and at a certain point there's a backlash and it's like, enough, I can't do it. Enough. And we flip between the two, trying really hard and the backlash, trying really hard and the backlash, forgetting what might be the middle way to stop where we are and stop rejecting it. Stop rejecting it in the favor of somewhere else. If we're not careful, in fact, I think it's really common, um, we start to get a new, improved version of rejecting ourselves, and that's called spiritual practice. And in the name of liberation, and getting somewhere else, I reject myself. And it's as if we're saying to, to ourselves, I'm going to keep on rejecting myself until I'm enlightened. Right? It sounds ridiculous when we hear it, but it's what's happening on the cushion every time we turn away, every time we say, no, this is not acceptable, every time we judge, every time we're pushing just that little bit more to get a little bit more of something that we had before or that we hope, that we've read about. That we can use our spiritual practice as a way of self-rejection. And we need to see that, discern that, so that it doesn't become another patterning that is actually got its inception in some kind of self-hatred. Whenever we're trying to get somewhere else, we're leaving home. We may not recognize home yet, we may not have realized home yet, but we keep leaving home. We keep looking for something that, ain't, that isn't going to be out there in the future. It simply isn't. It's not how it works. That what we're looking for, what we're seeking, is actually closer to us than our breath, is closer to us than the thought, is closer to us than any rejection or any judgment. But we keep overlooking something very obvious, something very open, something very immediate. I just want to tell a story to illustrate that way that we are convinced, we convince ourselves that we have to, there's somewhere else that we have to go. And um, I've also told this story many times, but it has to do with. Uh, Many years ago, we were house-sitting. I'm married to Yanai, in case you hadn't realized that. He's part of the story. That's why I'm telling you. He said to me the other day, he said, you introduced me as if you didn't know me. <laughs> I said, did I? Did I? Did it sound like, yes, okay. <laughs> A little bit too much training in, in impersonalness. Right. Um, anyway, that's my, he's my husband. <laughs> and many years ago, we were house-sitting, um, uh, in somebody's house and he was doing the washing up and the phone rang and he went to pick up the phone and uh, he was in the middle of, his f of the phone conversation and he shouted to me, he said, don't throw the washing up water out. And I said, okay. And he carried on his phone call, put the phone down and he said, I've lost my wedding ring. It might be in the washing up water. So we went and, you know, put the plug in and sieved it out and made sure, and it wasn't there. And so he started to look around the house and look in the kitchen and look everywhere. And he, he said, you know, you know when you've lost a ring, if you've ever worn a ring, when it's fallen off or you take it off, you can feel where it used to be. 
Anyone know that who's worn jewellery? You can feel where it used to be. There's the indentation. There's a sense something is missing. Something is missing. It's lost. And he, half an hour, I think he was, looking. And he started to get worried. And there was a whole, oh, dear, you know, I have to get another one. I'm really sorry. Blah, blah, blah. And then I looked at him and he was sitting on the chair. He'd given up. It was at the point he'd kind of given up. And he was feeling his finger even, you know, where something used to be. He was feeling it and, oh dear. And I looked at him, I said, yeah, no, it's on the other finger. (laughs) And he's like, oh, oh yeah. All the time it had been there, it had never been lost, it had never gone anywhere. And yet a whole world had been built on the sense that something was missing. On the sense that something that should be there was lost. And he was only half an hour, but we can spend a lifetime thinking that there's somewhere else we're going. Because we haven't quite examined yet that sense that there's something lost. There's some, there has to be somewhere else. This is something lost here. What we've lost, actually, is lost touch with the depth of what we are. But it's not anywhere out there. And it's not anywhere in here in a better experience. It's too primary. It's too basic, but we keep skipping over. So, well, I made loads of notes here. We're never going to go through all that. I think I'll stop, have a few more minutes and just open the theme of acceptance a little bit. When we finally recognize we're not going anywhere, which it's not like we finally recognize it. We have to keep recognizing it. Probably it happens for you during a sitting at some point, right? Okay, bell hasn't gone yet. I guess there really isn't anything to look forward to apart from the bell. (laughs) Okay, what options have I got? Uh, Okay, let's see what's here. At some point, takes us a while and keeps taking us a while because that knee-jerk reaction is to keep going somewhere else. Many, many times that has to happen. I once practiced in a monastery where they have their last meal of the day at 11 o'clock in the morning. So there's really nothing to look forward to. You know, at least you've got supper. And it was Sweet Tuesday today, apparently, I heard. Did you have pudding? It was sweet. That is called Sweet Tuesday, I found out today. Apparently there's always something sweet on a Tuesday here. But there was nothing to look forward to after lunch. So where do you go? And the reason for those kind of forms and the kinds of forms we have here, there's a number of reasons, but the, the form of the sitting, we have to keep getting it. Stop waiting, stop waiting, stop waiting for the bell to ring. And if you're waiting for the bell to ring, notice that. That is a flag. That waiting mind is a flag that there's something hard to bear right now. It's nothing about that liberation is going to happen when the bell rings. It's not. It's going to happen now. So when you're waiting, and probably... All of you have waited for a meditation bell to ring at some point in your life and this week. If not every sitting, if not several times every sitting, if not many times every sitting. When it happens, know it, discern it, name it. Oh, this is the waiting mind. What am I waiting for? The bell. Yeah, because that will be good. Then I can walk. Oh, walking. (laughs) Walking meditation. Right. And then when we're walking, hmm, waiting for the bell, because then I can go and sit. (laughs) And finally, we have to, okay, where does that leave me? What is all this pointing to? It's pointing to this wish to keep getting away from where I am. What's here that's so hard to bear right now? Is it pain? Might be. Is it a mind state of boredom or irritation? Or judgment. What is here that's so hard to bear? Can I turn to it? 
Can I turn to my experience, whatever it is? We have to know it. And we'll get over the days that are following more and more discernment about how to recognize what is actually here because we habitually reject the things that don't fall into my map of how things should be. And that gap between the way things are and the way things should be in the world according to Catherine or the world according to whoever you are, that is the gap of suffering. The gap between the way things are and the way things should be. And acceptance does not mean a passive resignation. It's a very profound, actually, a profound turning toward and not fleeing. Whatever it is we find right here, this is our doorway. I read recently that Carl Jung said that the most terrifying thing for a human being is to accept oneself completely. Because we might, oh, acceptance, that would be lovely. He says, the most terrifying thing to accept yourself completely. Completely. Why would that be terrifying? Completely. No parts left out. No parts left out here and now. Maybe you can imagine why that would be terrifying. Because that's why it doesn't happen. If we could say on Saturday night, okay, sit here, know that you're openness, don't cling to anything that arises and completely accept yourself. Carry on. Right? We don't. It's a, it's a threat to us in some way. And I'll finish this really a very short piece about acceptance. Maybe just... Uh, this is what it will be. This is from one of my teachers talking about just how deep acceptance can go, that it's not just a beginning practice. There's a lot of, it's very profound actually. So, accept, it's about accepting what is, he says, not just mentally, but with the whole of our being, intimately. Intimately. Self-acceptance is acceptance of being here now without manipulating. The more I accept, the more I am here, the more I am present. The more I am in the future wanting to achieve or even wanting acceptance, even wanting acceptance, the less I am accepting myself. Acceptance feels like taking a risk, jumping off a cliff, a quantum leap, because there are no securities, there are no guarantees. When this state of abandon is realized, I find I am alive as if for the first time. It is the first time. I am alive and awake, Bodhi, as the Buddhists say. It happens whenever I accept myself, let go of the preconceptions. The more I accept, the more alive I am. Total acceptance with the entirety of my being is the complete death of the manipulative ego and is full rebirth as awakening. Complete acceptance of what's here, our frailty, our humanness, our shadowy bits, our bright bits. Acceptance doesn't mean that we act out. This acceptance from the perspective of this openness that we are means we can see these shadowy parts arise. The parts we haven't accepted saying, no, it's not all right to have that thought, that feeling. The ones we get afraid of because if I feel that mind state of jealousy, hatred, whatever it is, we fear we'll act it out. The poem that I read at the Compassion Meditation today, the Please Call Me By My True Names, as we open, as we make room for more and more of what arises 
in order to be liberated. We see that this, these characters described in the poem are none other than issuing from the mind, the mind no different from ours. just depends what the conditioning has been, what the, the most recent conditioning has been. We can see the universals. It's universal. Right? That's what that poem was pointing about. It's universal. And with practice and discernment, those universals of, those, of that kind of material, we realize it doesn't have to be acted out. And there's a freedom in that. There's a freedom in that less fear to accept what arises. And when we take our hands off it, it arises in order to be liberated. And that openness that we are can, at times when people spoke in the groups, the group today, some people about, it feels rather vulnerable. It can feel rather vulnerable. It's unbounded. It's more unbounded. It's open. It may feel a little exposed at first, we may or may not recognize the openness yet, but we sense it. We sense that we are open, an open conduit where experience can arise and pass and not have to define who and what we are. Can arise in order to be liberated. So one of the reasons that it's terrifying also to really accept ourselves is if we do, we contact this openness that may at first feel very vulnerable, very open, very un undefended, very unbounded, not roped in with protection. And we can get to know that, get to start to trust that get to start to relax into that openness and undefendedness. So let's sit for a minute together to end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.